a Podcast One production. Mark Manson is a best-selling self-improvement author whose work doesn't focus on a particular tradition, instead conveys truths about humanity, what it means to be alive and looking for meaning in the moment. Mark says, challenge yourself to find the good and beautiful inside of everyone. It's there. It's your job to find it, not their job to show you. In the conversation that follows, Mark and I discuss the dark days of his depression, the paradoxical nature of hope, and the true meaning of success. There's two ways to be successful in this world. Either you can find as many golden eggs as possible and keep them for yourself, or you can be the goose that lays the golden egg, and then you never have to worry about finding one. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Mark Manson's books, The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F and Everything is Effed, have sold more than 13 million copies worldwide and have been translated into more than 60 languages. In this episode, you will learn how to truly embrace the challenges in your life to allow for more purpose and meaning. Mark, tell us a bit about your childhood and how you were raised, because you've obviously gone into writing these amazing books, but I want to know... I want to know what your childhood was like. Oh, man. Um, I mean, I was a pretty typical, like, upper middle class American white kid. You know, I lived in the suburbs. Uh, I grew up in Texas. Um, But, you know, it it was very, like, you know, in the U.S., we say, like, apple pie, baseball and apple pie, Um, kind of like leave it to beaver type stuff, you know, on the surface, everything looks great and it's very perfect. And, and it was very comfortable and it was very nice, but it was, um, it was also, you know, I, I, I grew up in the South and so it was very conservative and religious and, um, people are kind of set in their ways. So, um, I, I was a well-to-do kid, but I, I also grew up kind of like frustrated and felt like I didn't fit in. Like it, no, nothing ever made sense to me. And, uh, and so I think that kind of just like pushed me down a path of exploring ideas on my own. What was it that didn't make sense to you? Um, you know, it's like, I felt very strongly. So I, I, you know, I went to church a lot and I went to school and, and I, I grew up in a very like kind of cloistered suburban bubble where everything was from the outside looked kind of great and, and wonderful. And, uh, and I, I don't know, I just felt like everybody was full of shit. Um, you know, I, I just, I saw the way my teachers would talk and the pastor would talk and my parents and their friends would talk. And I just, I could tell that they were just, it was bullshit. Like they, Mm -hmm. they weren't actually expressing what they thought or they felt they were saying what they thought they needed. They, they should say, They thought they were saying things that they thought everybody else wanted them to say, and they Mm. weren't actually expressing how they really felt. And so I I saw the kind of this two, 
everybody appeared very two-faced to me. And, and to me, it just never made sense of like, why don't these people just say what they actually think? Like, I know my mom doesn't like this person. Why is she pretending to like her? Like, this is, that's stupid. Why would you do that? Um, and so it just, and, and at least, you know, kind of in, especially in Southern culture in the U S like if you're the person who points those things out to other people, um, they don't like you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like if you, they don't, they don't want you, like they don't want to hear, uh, things like that. They don't want you, you know, people questioning the kind of the culture or the assumptions or, or the things that they do. So it was, um, I had a very, it, it, it was a weird upbringing in that, materially everything was extremely comfortable, but I think kind of emotionally and socially, it was very uh, isolating and contentious. What did your parents think of the fact that you thought that everyone was full of bullshit? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They didn't like hearing it. That's for sure. Mm. Um, you know, my, my parents, they, I think they had, they had a lot of attachments to, to certain aspects of their lifestyle. You know, as I've gotten older, I feel like we all kind of go through this experience where, uh, you know, when you're young, you, you, when you're a teenager or whatever, you think you're, you know, you kind of see, you sense that your parents are, are kind of full of shit and then, and, and then in your twenties, you start to see all the, the flaws and stuff in your parents. And you're like, you realize all the ways they kind of failed and, or didn't do such a great job. And there's a, like a lot of resentment, but then I feel like once you get into, you know, you're fully an adult, like once you get into your thirties and forties, there's a lot of forgiveness that happens. Mm. And there's a lot of understanding of like, you know, Oh, that, you know, like that dad did his best. Mm. Like that's what he knew. He was doing what he knew. Right. Um, and so I, I look at my parents and, and they were both small town America. Um, they, you know, they were both um, very educated people in their family. Like some of the first to be very educated people in their family, uh, you know, and so in their mind, it's like buying the big house and going to the big church and sending your kids to the big school. Like that was what you, that was being a, like they were nailing it, you know, yeah. like they, like they were crushing it. And so to have this like obnoxious 14 year old telling them, calling them out on stuff, um, they didn't take it very well. And, and I also didn't understand now, like where they were coming from. I think, um, you know, as the years have gone on, I think we all kind of look back in retrospect and have very similar appraisals of, um, those years. Um, you know, I think my parents now see kind of how superficial it was. And, uh, and then I also have a a lot more compassion for kind of where my parents were at, but, um, yeah, at the time it didn't, I I did not have a good relationship with them (laughs) for, for a number of years. Do you reckon there was an underlying knowing from a lot of your friends, say if you'd go to church and things like that, you kind of sit there and you think, as you were saying, like, are these people being sincere or not? Were the kids as onto it as what you were? You know, it, it was weird back then. So I'm a 90s kid. Mm. I'm an 80s and 90s kid. And I, I look back at that period. I, I feel like 
that my generation, like that period in particular, there was, and maybe this is just where I grew up, but it was very much like you were either all the way in or you were all the way out. Mm. Like there was no kind of, you know, you were either part of the crew or you were an outcast completely. And um, I, I feel like it isn't quite that way with kids anymore these days. Um, maybe, maybe that's wrong. I don't know, but, um, it's, so it's like, I had my little group of outcast friends who also thought everything was bullshit. And, (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is, is that that none of the, none of the other kids want to have anything to do with us. You know, it was kind of like, we were just our, our, we were like loners. We were like our own little group. And, um, you know, it was, it was, it was almost like the, yeah. I guess it was fitting that Matrix was such a, a big movie back then, you know, because it felt like it's like, okay, we're the kids who took the red pill and we see how like, it's just, yes. it's like everything is like a fucking lie. Um, and it's, and you know, everybody else is like seduced by the program, but you know, it, it's, I think it was just, that's just how things shook out. I think I, again, as everybody got older, everybody kind of like realized that it's a combination of both, you know? And then you yeah. go on to write an amazing blog that you did for a, a number of years. What led you to do that? Uh, the blogging, the blogging happened on accident. Honestly, um, I so I I graduated from from university in two thousand seven, which um, happened to be the worst job market in the last 86 Mm -hmm. years, you know? So it's like there were zero jobs. And um, I was living on a friend's couch and I was doing some like freelance web work. You know, I taught myself a little bit of web design in school and um, I just really didn't know what to do. And I had some friends who were trying to start an online business. And so I was doing some web work for them. And they put me onto this book by Tim Ferriss called 4-Hour Workweek. Mm -hmm. And um, I read this book and he starts talking about how you know, on the internet, you can, if you can build a website and, you know, sell something online and, and like automate it, uh, you know, you can like go hang out at the beach all week and like, you know, whatever, sleep in every day. And I'm like, man, that sounds awesome. Uh, and so, and I had nothing else to do. I was like, there's no work anywhere. I was broke. So I'm like, what the hell? Let's start some websites. And, um, you know, initially the goal was to actually like build a company marketing something or selling some pill that nobody wants or whatever. Um, and I was, I wasn't very good at that, but it turned out what I was good at was the writing part. Like, you know, I would write blog posts or articles and put them in different places and they would get a lot of attention. Um, and so I was like, Oh, well maybe I just keep doing this. Maybe I just keep writing about stuff. And, uh, and then it was particularly, it was the self-help and, at the time, it was it was particularly the dating relationship advice that started to go viral and get a lot of attention. And so that's, I'm like, all right, well, this is what works. So I guess I'm a blogger now. <laughs> <laughs> and then you write The Subtle Art and that absolutely blows up. Yeah. Well, like, you know, people said, oh, you, you're this overnight success. And as we know, with all overnight successes, it's not a it's not an overnight sure. success. It's years. It's like 10 years, years of hard work. And Every overnight success has been doing work for 12 <laughs> years. You, know, you just write a book yeah. one day and suddenly, you know, it's a, a New York Times bestseller. But what were the emotions around that? Because, you know, no one, you know, as much as 
you might think like, yeah, I'm ready for this. Like if my book gets to New York Times bestseller, like I'll totally be ready. But I can imagine that you weren't. What was that like? You know, it's a, it's a weird experience because it happens with a book. It happens so slowly. Um, I feel like, you know, if you're a musician and you have a hit album, you find out like very quickly, Mm. or if you are an actor and you have a hit movie, you find out very, very quickly with a book. You, it slowly takes off over the course of months and months. Like you see the, you know, the sales increase 5% a week. And after a year, it's like, you know, it's 10 X or 50 X or whatever. But each week you're like, Oh wow. It went up again. Oh my God. It went up again. Oh my God. It went up again. And so it's this weird week in week out feeling of not knowing, you know, is this going to last? Is this a fluke? Um, you know, like Chris Hemsworth posted my book, like right after it came out and, you know, it took off in Australia. And so part of it was like, it's like, Oh, well, Chris Hemsworth posted it. So this is, this is going to go away in a few weeks. You know? Um, so there's this constant doubt and uncertainty of like, wait, did I actually make it? Like, is this, is this really happening? Or is this just like, uh, am I just catching a wave here for a few months? Um, and so it wasn't really, it actually took a couple of years for it to kind of sink in. Mm. And, um, and then, and then by the time it sank in, the book had been out so long that like nobody really wanted to talk about it anymore. <laughs> so, um, so it, it was, it was a very strange, disorienting thing where it's almost like I was, I felt like I was kind of the last one to realize how big of a deal it was in some ways. You know, you spoke before about that doubt, and I definitely have had that before where someone big will post about you. I've had it with the podcast on numerous occasions and I think, oh, geez, and it just goes wham. And then you think, oh, but it'll, like like you said, that will go down. You know that it goes up, boom, it goes down, up, boom, it goes down. When that doubt really sinks in, though, that's not a good place to be. <laughs> How do you navigate that? It's, um, it's funny because I feel like blogging, like, really prepped me mentally for, I guess, kind of the the vicissitudes of being an author or being kind of like having work and my work in public judged in public because it's, you know, one of the things I learned with blogging is it's a, it's a similar type of thing. You know, it's like, Oh, I got about, you know, traffic was up 5% this month and I was up 2% this month and 3% this month. And it's, it's always small enough that it's, it doesn't, it's not like a huge victory, Mm. but when you add it up over two years, suddenly you have a huge audience. And, um, and I've seen, I had seen throughout my career, I'd seen articles go viral and I'd seen that spike go up. And then I, and I had felt that come down, mm. uh, on the other side. And, and when that come down happens, you, you have a lot of these irrational feelings of like, Oh my God, nobody's going to read me. Nobody's going to stick around. I'm a one hit wonder, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Um, and, one of the things that I learned while blogging was that I, I would, there, whenever that happened, I, I, I learned to remind myself of like, look, like this was a slow build. And if it, if it ever declines, it'll be a slow decline too. Like mm-hmm. if my career is over, it's not because it's like, everybody's going to wake up one day and decide, you know what? I'm not going to read Mark Manson anymore. No, it, it, if it, if this goes away, it's going to happen to be 2% less this month. 2% less the next month. And then suddenly 10 years from now, I'm going to be like, oh shit, where's my audience? Mm. Um, 
So that kind of like gives me comfort. It's like, okay, there's always going to be time to adapt. There's always going to be time to, to notice what's happening and, and try something else. Um, you know, and that, that helps me go to sleep at night. When did you decide to write Everything is Fucked? What was, what was your reasoning behind doing that one? Um, that, that everything was fucked. Uh, it was kind of a dual motivation. One was, one was personal and then one was more social. The, you know, the personal one was, I actually, subtle art, the success of subtle art was very disorienting in many ways. You know, I, I already described how it kind of, it didn't, one of the ways it didn't really feel real, but on top of that, like suddenly having, uh, you know, kind of this quote unquote being a public person, mm. uh, is very weird. And then suddenly like, you know, you go to friends, birthday parties and stuff and random people who you don't know start freaking out cause you're there and they like talk your ear off and want you to sign something, you know, and it, it gets super weird. You know, mm. your friends, are, your friends who have known you for 20 years are sitting there like, really this guy, <laughs> like what the fuck? Um, and, and so a bunch of weird stuff like that starts happening, happening. Um, you know, the money shows up, which is awesome, but it's also weird. Like it, 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 it changes things and it messes with your head a little bit. And so I actually went through a period after subtle art where I was, I mean, looking back, I, I recognized that it was a little bit of a depression, um, which was simply from the fact that like things got so good that I didn't know what the hell to do with myself. And, um, and so I thought that was so strange, like literally the best thing that has ever happened in my professional life caused me to be depressed for six to eight months. Mm. And, and I was like, that's, that's odd. That's really, really odd. Like, why does that happen? Mm. Um, and then at, at the same time, I was looking at the world, you know, this is pre pandemic, but um, I was looking at the world and it, it's like everything in 2018 2017, 2018, like everything's great. Like economies are booming, no major wars going on, you know, record low crime record, you know, people are healthy. They're living longer than ever, all this stuff. And, uh, and yet like it, it's when you looked at surveys, people were more pessimistic than they, they had ever been. I think it was something like 6% of Americans said that they thought the the country was going to be better in 20 years than it was today. I was like, that's insane. Like mm. why that's completely irrational, you know, like why, why is that happening? So I wanted to write a book about how, um, I guess subtle art was kind of a book about how the pain and struggles in our lives can actually turn out to be good things. And, and I, I guess everything is fucked is kind of a book about how, uh, getting the good things that we want in life can actually be bad for us, you know, or it can cause us to suffer more. Um, you know, it was kind of looking at the flip side of that paradox. Mm. Why do you think that is that getting the good things in life can cause us to suffer more? I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, you know, what, the primary one that I talk about in the book is that the human mind seems to simply need some sort of problem to mm. fret about. Um, it's just, that's our default state is, is there needs to be some problem in our life that we're fretting about. And you know, if there is no obvious problem, then our minds kind of create one for us. 
you know, we, we start envisioning problems where maybe there aren't, you know, so many problems where, um, we start exaggerating problems and imagining them to be huge, huge things. Um, it was interesting traveling so much for the first book, uh, and talking to people around the world because it was, um, you know, you can tell a lot about how good a person's life is or how good a country is like kind of how good of a place a country is by hearing them discuss their problems. You know, it's, it's like, you talk to somebody in New Zealand and it's like, Oh my God, it's, they want to close down this national park and it's a crisis. It's an absolute outrage. And then you talk to, you know, a Brazilian and they're like, yeah, my, my mother just got shot and robbed and like, but you know, things are okay. And it's, you know, you start to see that it's like everybody's the constant is people being upset. Mm -hmm. People are just, we're all upset about something all the time, but it's what we're bad at gauging is, is, um, that maybe some things are much, it's, it's actually a blessing to be upset about certain things and that we should be happy that we're upset about certain things. Um, so I, I think that's the big one. Um, and then, you know, obviously there's kind of the, the social media and, and the news media and everything. I think it, it's, it's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of incentive for, problems to be exaggerated or to mm. be blown out of proportion um, to, to drive clicks and attention and, and things like that. And so I think since most of us can access our perception of the world or perception of our culture through social media these days or news media, um, we're kind of viewing the world through a funhouse mirror without realizing it. When you had that troubling time of obviously having depression after writing The Subtle Art and then going into writing Everything is Fucked. How did you get through that? Honestly, I mean, I kind of wrote my way out of it. Um, you know, Everything is Fucked was the book I needed to read. Mm. And the thing about that book too, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm over a year removed from from everything is fucked now. So I feel like I can view it a little bit more objectively. Um, it's funny because now, you know, there are things that, there are definitely flaws that I see with it. But looking back, it's like, it was almost therapeutic. Like, it's like I needed to, to write those parts of it. Yeah. Um, just to know that I could. You know, I think with subtle art, there was a lot of what was driving kind of my despair was this idea of like, I'm never going to do anything that is this well-received ever again. Like this is kind of mm. in terms of like external material success, like this is, I've hit the top of the mountain and it, I'm for the rest of my life, I'm coming down the other side. How <laughs> and, were you like that, early thirties or something? Yeah, I was 32. Yeah. So, you know, kind of like the idea that you peaked at 32 <laughs> is like, it's a pretty yeah dark thought. Um, and so for me, it was, I, there were certain things, you know, the conclusion I came to was like, okay, if I know I'm not going to top this thing, then, then I, I need to just say, fuck it and, and, and write whatever I want. And, and, and I needed to prove that sort of freedom to myself and to the publisher and kind of a lot of the pressure that was on myself that prove, prove that I was still capable of not caving to uh, you know, just trying to 
follow up with a repeat of the first book mm. or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what got me out of it was, was, was showing that like, okay, you don't have to be controlled by this thing. You don't have to be, you know, the same way a lot of people, you know, we tend to let our failures control us mm. or control our perception of ourselves. You know, we don't realize that we let our successes also control us. Mm. You know, we feel, we can feel imprisoned by our success. Um, and so the second book was very much me like, proving that I didn't have to be imprisoned by it. I can still do whatever I want. That's a very liberating. You start Everything is Fucked with examples of the Holocaust, which is I find absolutely fascinating. And I've interviewed on A Life of Greatness, a Holocaust survivor, and know many Holocaust survivors. Why did you decide to start with that? I've... I've wanted to write that story for years and I never found the appropriate place. And once I had written a decent chunk of this book, you know, the, pretty much the whole thrust of the book is that like, Hey guys, like we're all, we're spoiled brats, you know, like in, in terms of world history, like this is the best time to be alive. And if you are educated enough to actually read this book, like, you are so blessed in so many ways. Mm. Um, and I feel like the Holocaust is kind of the one thing, especially in the Western world that, that everybody agrees was like yeah. the low point of humanity. Like there's no debate around that. Like you can, there are plenty of other horrible things that mm. people debate about, but it's like the Holocaust, there's no debate. Um, and so that's why, that's why I, I was like, let's, I want to start at a starting point that is, that is so low and so universally agreed upon that it will kind of get everybody on the same page of like, oh yeah, maybe things aren't so bad right now. Let's talk about hope because that's obviously a big part of the book. This is fascinating, I find. Mm. The definition of hope and what that is, because I remember a teacher saying to me a while ago, and then after listening to your book, he said, you should never have hope, don't use that word. And I remember thinking, oh, okay. And then when I understood why, he's like, because if you use hope, it's like you're wishing for something, like you don't know if it'll come true. You think maybe, but you're not sure. It's like this, it's like this big uncertainty. It's like, oh, like, I hope to have this, you know. Mm-hmm. Why did you want to nail down on hope? Because I felt, I guess one of my, uh, the person, I guess the counterintuitive lesson I took from my personal experience after Subtle Art was that uh, it was actually kind of my hopes for myself that, that caused the problem. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, look like hope, hope feels good and hope is important, I think in some contexts, but I think when we, when we invest ourselves so much in some vision of the future of some like hopeful vision of the future that we're looking forward to, inevitably we're going to end up disappointed and inevitably we're going to end up limiting ourselves based on that vision. And, um, you know, I, I looked around the more and more I researched kind of like a lot of the political polarization and, uh, you know, rates of depression and anxiety and stuff that are going on right now. Um, I felt like there's, there's kind of this, this almost like addiction to 
hope in, in our culture of like people or there's people are always selling hope to each other. And it's like, Oh, well, if we just do this, everything's going to be great, you know? And, and it's, it happens politically, you know, it's like, Oh, we're, we're going to make America great again. Or, or if you're on the other side, it's like, Oh, we're going to get rid of the police and everything's going to be great. You know, it's, it's, it's like, no, everything's always going to be fucked. Like it's just some problems are better than others. And, uh, and everything has unforeseen consequences. And the more married you become to your, your chosen vision of hope, the less flexible you're going to be when those problems arise, you know, the more ideologically rigid you become and whether that ideology is political or, or in, you know, your day-to-day life of like how to be a good father or how to be a good partner or whatever, like it's, the more you're attached to some hopeful vision, the more rigid you become in what you're willing to accept or tolerate uh, in your life. And it's, um, and that's no good. Do you think there's a difference between faith and hope? Uh, yes. It's a really good question. Um, I think hope requires faith. Um, but you can have faith in things without hoping for them. Mm. That makes sense. You know, it's, um, hope, hope has like a moral component to it. And I think that's where a lot of the trouble comes from. Um, and it's because it's the, the problem with, with the moral component is it can't be disproven, you know? So it's like, I can hope for, let's say, you know, let's say I'm like a, a, a radical and I hope that the, the government gets overthrown and, you know, we institute whatever system. Um, not only, not only is there like a very strong moral valence to that belief, but it's, there's no way to know if I'm right or wrong until it actually happens. And so it's, it's as long as you're like, there's like a, I have faith that that is a good thing. I'm not going to be amenable to to people who disagree with me or people who see things another way or whatever. Um, That's why I say in the book that it's like the, the ultimately the only thing that's seems to be held. The only thing that seems to be healthy to have faith in is (laughs) the belief that everything is fallible. You know, it's like, that's kind of the only thing that protects, that protects us from like zealotry and ideology is, is, is the belief that we're all fallible. Every belief is incomplete. Nothing is completely right. Problems will never go away. And, um, and I think at, at the core, like that's like a very classic vision from, you know, the enlightenment and science, you know, mm. it's like the basis of science. It's the basis of the enlightenment. Um, but I, it feels like every every few generations we have to forget that and become a bunch of ideological zealots and uh, to learn it again. You say there's good hope and bad hope. What is the difference between both of them? I, I would distinguish it as like healthy and unhealthy hope. And, and I think, um, and I make the comparison that it's very similar to like love. Like there's healthy forms of love and there's unhealthy forms of love. Um, I think a healthy form of hope is, is a hope that, um, that is flexible, you know, that it's, you, you use it in a way that's very, um, 
it's very private and it's very, you know, the side effects of it are very like pro-social and, and help you improve as a person, help other people improve as a person. I think, uh, any sort of hope that involves, um, rigidity and, and destructiveness or, or, you know, it, it's, you run the risk of, um, holding on to a very unhealthy hope. So there's, there's like an unhealthy love and there's a healthy form of love. And, and the way I distinguish between the two is that generally unhealthy love is it's motivated by, uh, an escape from one's personal pain or person it's escape of responsibility for one's personal situation. You know, it's like, I'm in love with this person because it helps me forget what I'm going through. Um, and that's very, it ends up being toxic and it creates a very toxic dynamic in the relationship. Like hope is very much the same way, you know, that, um, if you're hoping for something as a way to escape your present condition or escape dealing with the problems that you, you face in the present, um, then that will create a very rigid and toxic kind of ideological disposition. Whereas, a healthy form of love is very, it's unconditional. It's giving. It's like, I'm, I'm going to love you, whether you return it or not. I'm loving you for the simple sake that it's the right thing to do. And it's what I feel, you know, and I feel like a healthy form of hope is very similar. It's like, well, I hope for this because I believe it's a good thing, but it doesn't, if it doesn't happen, that's okay. Because it's, it's worth hoping for regardless. That makes sense. Yes. No. I've, it was funny. I actually have interviewed, I interviewed a couple of teacher a while ago and he was talking about the same thing about love. It's, it's unconditional. You don't just love someone because if they love you back, but if they don't, then you'll stop loving them. So that makes complete sense. You talk about religion in the book and we obviously touched on that in the beginning of this conversation. Can you define what you feel like religion is to us? I define religion very broadly in the book, which upset a number of people. <laughs> um, it's funny, th that chapter in the book is very polarizing. People either really love it or they really don't. Um, and I kind of, I guess I kind of knew that. But, uh, you know, I define religion in the book very broadly as a basically any, any kind of cluster of um, faith-based beliefs or, or kind of a cluster of hope, you know, like different forms of hope. And I, I in the, in the book, I, I described that, you know, the, the forms of religion that we're most familiar with or that we traditionally use the word with are what I call like supernatural beliefs, belief systems, um, which is the hope is based in the afterlife, you know? So it's like, um, my hope is that if I am a good person and I, and I pray every week and I go to church and I ask for forgiveness, then I'll, God will reward me when I die. Like that's kind of the classic hope-based system. And, and um, those sorts of beliefs have been very robust throughout human history because, you know, you can't, they're based in the afterlife. Like you can't know if they're true or not until you're dead. So it's, there's not really any room for debate. Um, whereas I, I also describe you know, they're kind of like more worldly religions, which I describe as ideological religions, which is like the faith-based belief system that say, 
like Marxism, I would describe as an ideological religion or uh, capitalism is a ideological religion or, you know, whatever. Um, it's, uh, and these are all kind of clusters of beliefs that we take on faith and they all come, they, they all have certain hopes attached to them for a certain kind of future. And, uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong. Like we all have, I guess kind of the point I make in that chapter is that we all have to adopt some form of religion. We all have to adopt these clusters of belief systems and we, and, and the hopes that come along with them. The question is simply how tightly are we going to hold on to them? How, um, how vested are we going to make our personal identity into them? And, um, and I argue throughout the book that it's, 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 uh, we should hold them as lightly as possible. Um, and that we should, we should be as flexible with them as, as much as possible. And, uh, so it's a very broad way of looking at it, but it's, I had fun with it. You were Buddhist for a while. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was, I was very into Zen Buddhism, Mm. uh, as a young adult, I've kind of drifted away from it, but you know, if you put a gun to my head and made me declare a religion, I would say Buddhist. Mm. And why do you not practice as much of it anymore? It's a good question. I ask myself that frequently. Um, I, I kind of drifted away. It's, I don't know if it's, maybe it didn't feel, you know, when I discovered it, it was such a revelatory thing for me that um, I became very intense about it, very excited went on retreats and read a bunch of books and meditated quite a bit. Um, you know, but as the years go on, it, it becomes less sexy and exciting and the things that were new and profound before, you know, kind of become obvious after a while, you know, it, it, you, you kind of get used to it. Um, and so now, now I, I dabble and, uh, and I don't know, it just doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't feel like a hugely important thing to be pursuing right now in my life. Um, but maybe that will change one day. In, in your book, you say the more pain we experience, the more resilient we become. Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, I think the reason that is, is it's just pure evolutionary adaptation. You know, it's our, our bodies are designed to ad- adapt to whatever stresses are, are put on it. That said, there is kind of like a, because you call it like a U-curve, mm. the pain. So um, if there's, if we experience extreme amounts of pain, it can kind of break us psychologically. And, you know, that's, that's when you experience trauma. Um, but then I would also argue that if we experience no pain, like extremely small amounts of pain that can also break us psychologically because we start experiencing everything as traumatic. Um, so there's, a, there's almost like a Goldilocks spot for stress in the life. And, and I, I, I think the perfect analogy is, is, you know, physical stress, you know, it's, it's exercise, going to the gym, like putting moderate amounts of stress on your body and your muscles and your bones makes you a stronger person. And it's, the same thing emotionally. Like if you go through life with no emotional stress, um, you, you, you just seem to fall, start to fall apart. And, uh, 
And at the same time, if you encounter massive amounts of stress, it's like somebody dropping a thousand kilo mm. barbell on you, you know, it breaks you. Um, so it's the key is to, to consistently, uh, find moderate amounts of emotional stress and mental stress. What do you think the biggest pain in your life has been? Oof. Um, it's funny because I, so there are four personal stories and subtle art and not giving a fuck. And, um, and I, I would say all four of them are like in my top five most painful moments. I'm not sure which one takes the cake. I mean, in terms of just, uh, influence like repercussions it's had throughout my life for sure like the my parents divorce and the dissolution of my family and but that's one of those things that like i mean it's traumatic at the time but you don't notice you know it's not until you're like 30 that and you've been through five years of therapy that you're like wow that really fucked me up (laughs) like you don't notice it at the time so much you know whereas something like uh you know a friend of mine died at a party, um, you know, right in front of everybody pretty much. And, you know, that is just like such a, I mean, I struggle to even find words to describe how jarring that is Mm. emotionally. Like it's, they call it shock for a reason because it's just, you feel immobilized verbally, emotionally, everything. Like it, it, it feels like a dream that you can't really get out of, um, for days at a time. You know, so that just in terms of pure visceral reaction, that would probably take the cake. But in terms of like what's affected me over the long run, it's, you know, the family stuff probably. Do you think that you've become more resilient out of that? Totally. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I mean, it's, it's, those are, you know, so the, the things I talked about in Subtle Art was uh, my friend passing away, parents' divorce, and me getting arrested, um, which basically happened at the same time. Uh, girlfriend cheating on me and leaving me, and uh, oh, and being stalked. Um, with the exception of being stalked, like that just felt totally unnecessary. Um, <laughs> uh, the the other three, the other three were some of the most formative experiences of my life, like some of the biggest lessons. And I think the things that shaped my character and my personality, like came from those experiences for sure. Are you not happy that they occurred, but if you could turn back time, would you erase any of them? No, no. And that's the funny thing with experiences like this, right? Like you don't, wish them on anybody mm. like and you don't you definitely don't want to go back and do it again but at the same time you're, you're glad you're kind of glad it happened um or you're you wouldn't undo it let's just put it that way you know it's a weird it's a weird mixed feeling mm. like that where it's like i'm grateful even for those experiences mm. but um but at the same time, they were horrible and I would mm. never wish them on anybody. I suppose it's, you know, the growth that you've 
you experience out of them. Totally. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Oh, God. That's a good one. Uh, commitment. I, I'm, I've been a commitment phobe throughout my life uh, with everything a little bit, but particularly with romantic relationships, intimate relationships. Um, and it's, I feel like that's something that I've really only started to get a handle on in like the last five years or so of um, understanding that, that it's actually the act of picking something without knowing it's the right thing or picking, picking someone without knowing they're the right person that is, that makes it valuable in the first place. Like it's, uh, it's, it's been a very difficult but powerful lesson for me. What's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, my, so speaking of my dad, my dad, and it's funny cause I actually talked to him about this recently and he doesn't remember saying it, <laughs> but you know, that's often how the best advice goes. Um, so I remember early on in my career when I just first started blogging, first started, you know, a couple websites and stuff. And, um, I had written something that I was very proud of and there was a more prominent blogger with a much larger audience and who also wrote about dating relationship stuff. And, uh, and about a month after I published mine and I had a very small audience, nobody knew who I was at the time. Suddenly the exact same ideas show up on this very popular relationship bloggers website. And it was, it was crushing. Like it was, mm -hmm. I felt so powerless. I'm like, wow, is this what's going to happen? Like, you know, I can't go up against this guy. Like nobody cares. Nobody knows who I am. I post on Facebook or something. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> um, and so I, I was very upset and I, I called up my dad and I was talking to him about it. My, and my dad's an entrepreneur. He's a business owner. And, um, he's, uh, he's in manufacturing and he's had, I mean, he said, you know, over the years, he's had dozens of people steal patents or rip off mm -hmm. products or do knockoffs and stuff of whatever he's doing. And so I explained everything to him. And, and so he was just kind of telling me about that. And he said, he said, you know, Mark, there's, there's two ways to be successful in this world. Either you can find as many golden eggs as possible and keep them for yourself, or you can just learn how to lay, be the goose that lays the golden egg. And then you never have to worry about finding one. And I thought that was so smart. And it was basically like, you know, look, if you're, if you teach yourself how to come up with valuable things, like create value out of nothing, people can steal as much as they want it's like, you're always going to be fine. Like you, you basically, you have like this infinite reservoir within yourself. And I found that true in a lot of areas mm. of life, not just business. You know, it's, it's, um, it's most people spend most of their time trying to find the gold, like to get the gold from somebody else. Um, but if you can find a way to just conjure it up within yourself, then it's, you can give it away. You know? That's so wise. Yeah. What is a life of greatness to you? I would say it's it's living a life honestly mm. and not just with others, but with yourself. And and part of that honesty is is uh, 
I, I would say, an honest effort to to improve and iterate on yourself. I think as long as that's present, it kind of doesn't matter where you end up in the material world. You know, as long as that psychological gear is spinning, then you're there. Mark Manson, thank you for the beautiful conversation today. Thanks for having me. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.